prophet of the Lord, who was a contemporary, of course, of Isaiah. So Isaiah would be maybe better known, maybe we would say. But here's a contemporary of him at the same time. And he sought to warn a spiritually complacent people of the coming judgment of the Lord. He had hoped that what had happened to the northern kingdom, particularly in Samaria, which was the capital of that area, it would serve as a warning and that the southern part would learn the lesson. But men and women, is it not true that so often when trouble or disaster strikes others, we're struck by a sense of relief that had not been affected ourselves, we frequently don't learn the lessons that tragedy could teach us. Micah wanted Judah to learn by what had happened to Samaria. And what we have in these verses is his own reaction to the happenings in the north. It's one of mourning and of sorrow. And that same judgment was about to fall on Jerusalem. And that's how he closes out this first chapter regarding the warnings of God. The southern region had no reason to suggest that they would be immune from the judgment of the Lord. They too had involved themselves in sinning against the Lord. They too had practiced their idolatrous practices that were common in Samaria. And for that reason, therefore, Micah emphasizes the danger that they were in, focusing on Jerusalem. And I want you to notice three times over, verse 9, where it says, He has come unto the gate of my people, even to Jerusalem. Verse 12, But evil came down from the Lord unto the gate of Jerusalem. Verse 16, Make thee bald, poly, for thy delicate children. Enlarge thy boldness as eagle, for they are gone into captivity from thee. He centers their thought upon the capital of the southern region, which is Jerusalem. I want you just to come with me in these verses. I want you to see that personal response. The Lord had spoken through his servant in the previous verses. But when we consider the words of verse 8 and 9, he himself makes known his Reaction. He says, therefore I will wail and howl. On account of what I've just said. On account of what I've relayed to you as a message from the Lord. Of that judgment that will come beginning first at the house of God. Therefore I will wail and howl. The prophet would weep over the terrible things that would happen to the people of God. You know, he doesn't say, I should have deserved all they get. But rather he uses language that speaks of mourning. This is the sort of thing that would be heard at Eastern funerals. I would say men and women, even today, when you get glimpses of maybe funerals in the East, particularly in Israel and uh, Palestine and so forth you, you will see a great outpouring of sorrow even to this night a, a great outpouring of, of, of wailing there's no restraint placed in an open expression of grief and sorrow and so it was in Micah's day so devastated is Micah at what was going to happen in Samaria that it seems that, as it were he presents himself already as a mourner at a funeral of the northern region that's the picture 
He goes on, he says, I will go stripped and naked. Again, they were customary signs of distress. You consider how it was with King David. I'll bring you back to 2 Samuel chapter uh, 15. 2 Samuel 15 in the words of verse 30. It says, And David went up by the ascent of Mount Olivet, and wept as he went up, and had his head covered, and he went barefoot. And all the people that was with him covered every man his head, and they went up weeping as they went up. What a picture of Christ. Mount Olivet. And there's great sorrow over the city of Jerusalem. He goes on. And he brings them examples from nature into his reaction. He says, I will make a wailing like the dragons and mourning as the owls. They were animals known for their cries. The long drawn out howls of the wolf or the owl. And what we're seeing is like the other prophets here. That they were not detached from the scene of the day. They were not detached from the situation around them. They certainly weren't detached from the people to whom they ministered unto even though he and others had a message of warning to deliver. Yet he did not let this harden his heart toward the people or his love for them. He enters into their sorrow. They can't see it, but he can see it. Isaiah is exactly the same. You turn back to Isaiah chapter 22 when he considered the destruction that the Lord would bring in the people. Isaiah 22 verse 4. He says, Therefore said I, Look away from me, I will weep bitterly. Labor not to comfort me, because of the spoiling of the daughter of my people. And of course, what is true of Jeremiah, is true of, uh, what's true of Isaiah, is true of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is often known as the weeping prophet. And Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 1. Oh, that my head were waters, and mine eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. That surely challenges us. When we present the warnings of the gospel, whether it's to the boys and girls of a Thursday night or a Sunday school of the Sabbath morning, whether we present the gospel to the young people or to the regular adult on the Lord's day, then we do it. We have to do it. We must learn to do it. With a heart that is loving, a heart that is faithful, yes, but loving, not in a harsh way. And Micah is a prophet and he's a heart for this people. He's willing because of what he sees what he has been told that the Lord is coming in judgment against them because of their sin. Micah states that there's two reasons for his grief. One, because of the situation in Samaria. Two, because of the situation in Jerusalem. He says for Samaria that her wound, look at verse 9, her wound is incurable. The wound is incurable for it has come on to Judah. Their sin and rebellion had struck a mortal blow to the life of Samaria. And that same rebellious attitude had spread until it now reached Judah and the very gates of Jerusalem in the south. Bear in mind, men and women, do you read about the gates in the scriptures? The gates of any city were an important place. The gates were where the people congregated. 
The gates were where the market was held. The gates were where uh, judicial rulings were made among the elders. Remember, uh, just to give you an example, in the wee book of Ruth. And where Boaz comes to uh, offer his hand in marriage to Ruth, it's done at the gate. The elders are at the gate. And so the gate was at a very important place of the, the, the city. It was a focal point. And so life in Jerusalem here was in danger of being corrupted as well, just as desperate as it was in Samaria. It could be that the instrument in this judgment would be the Assyrians. They would reach the gates of the city, they would besiege it. Indeed, following the fall of Samaria, they did make incursions into the south, although they could not conquer Jerusalem. Why? Because God spared it for David's sake. But they came to the gates. That's how close they were. Micah wasn't from Jerusalem. I've already given to you the detail last time around. In fact, we read the town uh, in a reading tonight. He came from Gath. We're told that the Morishite in the days of Jotham, verse 1. And the full name is given there in, in the words of, uh, words of verse 14. Morish. Gath. But even though he wasn't from Jerusalem, yet that doesn't allow him to be blind to what's going to happen. He does not allow that to blind them from the repercussions that will be felt right throughout the land. You notice how he speaks of the whole nation in verse 9. At the end of it, he has come unto the gate of my people. My people. Even the Jerusalem. He identifies with them. What happens to them involves him. And already it has caused them much grief. You know, men and women, just before I go a bit further, I want to bring that into the New Testament because we read in Romans chapter 12, verse 15, these words. Rejoicing in hope. Patient in tribulation. Continue in instant prayer. Distributing to the necessity of saints. Given to hospitality. There's an exhortation from the Apostle Paul to the believers. Meg is not from Jerusalem. But he stands with them. He enters in. To, to what should be sorrow in their hearts because of what they have done in sinning against the Lord. But he enters in. He preaches faithfully to them. And Paul here, to the believer, you know, he gets us away from the day in which we're in. We're in a very selfish day. It's every man for himself, isn't it? That's what the world's view is. As long as I'm all right, don't worry about my neighbour. Well, Paul's gospel view is exactly the opposite. He says, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continue in instant in prayer, distribute into the necessity of saints, and so on. Let me show you also here not only the personal response, but the places. That theme of mourning continues in these words. He uses 
words that David also spoke in his lament. Do you remember when he heard about the death of Saul and his friend Jonathan? He said, tell it not in Gath, or declare it not at Gath. Gath was uh, part of the, the Philistine area. One of their main cities. The implication was he didn't want to give occasion to their enemies to rejoice over a calamity that had struck Israel. Saul was dead. Jonathan, his friend, was dead. But don't tell it in Gath. And Micah's in the same vein of thought here in verse 10. Declare ye not at Gath. He doesn't want occasion given to the enemy. To rejoice over what's happening. Indeed when this judgment came. There wouldn't be time to weep. And from that he proceeds to mention certain places. Towns or villages. Presumably they're found located in the lowly but fertile foothills. Of the plain toward the Mediterranean. And with these names. There are commentators who have suggested. That that there's a great word play. On Micah's part. What I mean by that is that often what the name of the town or village means is reflected in what is said in the rest of the verse. Let me give you an example or two. Verse 10. Look at verse 10. It says, In the house of Aphra, roll thyself in the dust. That word means the house of dust. It's really Bethel Aphra, the house of And yet he says to them, in a picture of disaster, the inhabitants are commanded to roll in the dust. A manner of showing extreme anguish. There's a wee word play there. Their town meant this. Well, you just roll in the dust. Look at verse 11. Sapphire. Pass ye away, thou inhabitant of Sapphire, having thy shame naked. It means pleasant or beautiful. But its inhabitants were to experience a reversal of what that name suggests. Having thy shame naked, they've been laid away as slaves, stripped of their clothes, and exposed to their cuppers. The end of verse 11. He shall receive of you. Well, let me back up a piece. Inhabitant of Zanan came not forth in the morning of Beth He shall receive of you his standing. Beth means again the Beth part's house, and the Ezel means nearness. It might suggest to us that here was a place of refuge. And there was those places, cities of refuge, right throughout the land, at very prominent places and strategic places where they. Unforeseen murderer, what could run for safety? He didn't mean to take the life of a neighbor that the head came off the shovel, etc. And he could run to the place of refuge, and there he would be safe until the high priest died. It might suggest to us here was a particular place of refuge, but it was now in mourning. The cries of anguish and the lamentation witness the fact that it too was going to be engulfed in this disaster. And so its protection is taken away from it. Look at verse 12. There's another word. For the inhabitant of Marath waited carefully for good means bitterness. It was going to experience something closer to the meaning of its name. It was waiting for relief but it would not, it would not come. It failed to come. 
And the reason why there was no relief is because of the judgment. Look at the verse, verse 12. The judgment was coming down from the Lord. Didn't I direct your attention last time to verse 3? For behold, the Lord cometh forth out of his place and will come down. The same was said in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. The Lord had come down to see the sin that abounded there and rose even in the nostrils of a holy God. And here Micah saying, the Lord's coming down. And again in the words of verse 12, that's why there's no relief. For evil has come down from the Lord unto the gate of Jerusalem. Nothing of this was happening by chance. The sovereign God whom they had despised, whom they had spurned, had now intervened. His patience had worn thin and consequently there's no relief. The invading forces would reach the gate of the city. The city that would be under siege and unable to help others. And that's what happened during the reign of Hezekiah. Because you read in those books where you read about his reign. Of the armies of Sennacherib. And they've come and they've encroached in. And they're at the very gates of Jerusalem. In the closing three verses. Again there's a mention made of the names and the places and the foothills of Judea. Lachesh is one maybe that would be more familiar. It's a major fortress town. Yet the command is to bind the chariot to the swift beast. The ironic thing is, it's not that they would go to battle. It is that they would flee and escape. Get the chariot onto that swift beast. Get out. They too had abandoned the Lord as their source of confidence. But instead they sought safety through military might and through political allegiance and alliances. The outcome of their misplaced trust is obvious. Verse 14, therefore, on account of that, shall thou give presents to Moresheth Gath. They would end up paying tribute, taxes if you like, to the conqueror as he deported the inhabitants to a distant land Marashah was also an important fortress town yet they too would be involved in this judgment from the Lord he would bring an heir against them one that would conquer most probably would be the Assyrian do you see verse 15 Yet will I bring an heir unto thee, conqueror, O inhabitant of Marashah. It most certainly refers to God. It's not that Micah is saying, I will bring an heir unto thee. Micah is relating what God has revealed unto him. So close are the prophets walking with God that they use the, the personal pronoun. I will bring an heir unto thee. For a final time, Micah focuses in upon Jerusalem. After another reference to David and to the cave of Adullam, look at verse 16. Make thee bald, pull thee for thy delicate children. Enlarge thy baldness as the eagle. They may seem strange words to us when we read them. 
He's addressing the city. He's addressing the city as a woman. Urging her to go into deep mourning for the loss of her children. And that deep loss was commonly expressed by the plucking out or the shaving off of the hair. Even though it was forbidden by God for Israel to do this as something that the Canaanites did for their dead. I direct you back to Deuteronomy chapter 14. Deuteronomy 14 in the words of verse 1. Ye are the children of the Lord your God. Ye shall not cut yourselves nor make any baldness between your eyes for the dead. That's what the Canaanite did. For verse 2, Thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God, and the Lord hath chosen thee to be a peculiar people unto himself, set apart above all the nations that are upon the earth. And men and women, as, as the people of God, God has set you and I apart. He's chosen us out of the world. We're in the world, yes, but we're no longer of it. And he's chosen us to be set apart, that we might uh, be different from the world, that we might show forth Christ in our living. The plucking or the shaving of the hair was a sign of shame. I can go tonight, I haven't necessarily the time, but I could go tonight to 1 Corinthians 11. Because that's why ladies cover their hair, you see. They cover their glory. If you don't want to wear a head covering, then you should be shaven. It's brought in there in that very chapter. But it's a shame to be shaven. And God has given you a glory. And that's why you cover it when you come to worship God. Because he is worthy of all the glory. They were to make themselves as a particular vulture. That vulture, that animal was known for its, its baldness. Baldness as the eagle. And Micah encourages them here to engage in this morning with immediate effect. They weren't to wait until the day when disaster struck. They were to now engage in the morning. He is a mourner and he desires that they would, there would be repentance with them. That there would be mourning on their part too. If they accepted that this word was from the Lord that he spoke, then they would become as sure as he was that the judgment would also ensue. ensue. Look at Deuteronomy 28 this time. Deuteronomy 28 and 41. I'm bringing it in in comparison to what is said at the end of verse 16. It says, Thou shalt beget sons and daughters, but thou shalt not enjoy them, for they shall go into captivity. What's he say at the end of verse chapter 1, verse 16? He says, For they are gone into captivity from thee. You see, there's the curse of a broken covenant in Deuteronomy. If they disobeyed, the curses would be upon them. And here's the curse being realized. Here's the curse being fulfilled. The seed will be taken from them. They will be brought into captivity from thee. Men and women understand this. God keeps his word. 
He keeps his word thankfully in grace. But he also keeps his word in judgment. And there's the little reference back to Deuteronomy. It's now been fulfilled. If the people acknowledge the reality of their sin, then they would acknowledge the righteousness of God's threatened judgment. And that would be the first step to restoration. And men and women in the gospel, the sinner has to recognize their sin before they will recognize their Savior, the only remedy for sin. Sinner has got to be shown why they need Christ, why they need the gospel. It's because they have sinned in Adam, they have fallen short of Adam's of God's glory. And they need Christ as that, fi- that second Adam, that fi- final Adam, to restore unto them what God has purchased for us. There's just a little note in, fla- in, in closing about his passion. Micah had paved the way that lay before them because of their rebellion against God. He has a compassionate concern about them. He's pleading with them in tears to recognize the dire situation in which they were in. And you know, I bring it again into the New Testament because when I read this of Micah, it does remind us of the Apostle Paul because he displays the same passion with regard to his fellow kinsmen. Romans chapter 9. Just read with me the first three verses. He says, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost. God's my witness. That I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren. My kinsmen, according to the flesh. If it was possible, I'd wish that I was a curse. I was separated eternally from Christ for the sake of my brethren. Is that not passion? Is that not a compassion? Look at chapter 10, verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. my prayer, as my desire says they might be saved men and women I just end there because although chapter 1 is a chapter of the message of judgment is there not more than a mere lesson about the warnings of God's judgment here to us surely it begs us to pay attention to what is happening around us Jerusalem had been shown what would happen to the towns and villages around her. And though Micah has prophesied of the disaster coming to the gates of Jerusalem, that wasn't to be taken in the wrong sense. There, there was no exception. And the message is still the same where the Lord said, Except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. The message was as strong to them. That's yet the message that the unrepentant need to hear. And we do them a great disservice if we do not earnestly pray that God in his grace would spare them.
and invariably surely it'll mean a passion just like Micah or like the Apostle Paul invariably it'll mean a weeping I speak to my own heart men and women listen our eyes are too dry in the prayer meetings Psalm 126, I close, verse 5. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. What's the precious seed? It's the word of God. It's incorruptible seed. It's able to give life to the sinner. And it says, he that goeth forth and weepeth shall doubtless come again with rejoicing. Number one, we'll see soul seeing. We can't cause an anxious thought. But you know, we can pray for them. And we can weep for them. And Micah did that. He's in a mournful spirit. He's a sorrowful spirit. The judgment is coming on Samaria. And he begs that Jerusalem and the surrounding towns would learn the lesson. Because it's coming on them too. May the Lord open our eyes to those around us. Give us a greater burden. Pray for the lost. Pray for those who are not saved. Privileged in hearing the gospel but not saved. That they might even come. Trust the Lord to bless his word for hearts tonight.